and welcome to Stay in the Loop with Lucy. This is a show that covers health and well-being through connection to people. People in our community and people beyond who share with us their experiences, their choices and consequences, and regardless of age, their innate wisdom. By discerning and getting a sense of what is transferable from what these guests share, we can choose to apply the relevant aspects in our lives and in our community and develop programs that found a more sustainable, loving and heartfelt way to be with each other, thereby improving our physical and our mental health. This week's show on Stay in the Loop with Lucy is another story on post-traumatic stress. I went to a talk given by Jeff Garland at the PCYC earlier in the week and interviewed him afterwards. He was a police officer for nearly 16 years and um, exited the... I'll change that and left the force as a senior sergeant. He jumped straight into the deep end, working on the streets of Redfern and the infamous block. No job was too tough, no job was too hard. I think that's possibly, having just met uh, Jeff for the first time, I think that's possibly what got him out of bed this morning, that he really wanted to make a difference, to go out there and actually um, make our place safer. So he didn't take the easy option, no easy option. He went straight in the deep end. The talk that I attended was a triple zero trauma talk and he's going around the country giving these talks, trying to raise awareness about post-traumatic stress and how we can support frontline workers that we actually need to be having this conversation. Welcome, Jeff, to the Triple H studios. Well, thank you, Lucy. I'm grateful to be here. Um, now. Let's just start. Where does your story start? Where did you actually say, what, at what age? Because I've heard all sorts of different ages, but I'm gathering this urge to be a police officer happens by either someone inspirational coming into your life or it just comes from the inside, this urge to, to put the uniform on and join the force. I can't actually specify a certain age, but no, I was fairly young. I just guess that... The, the thought of good versus evil and I just always held police in high regard as to what they do in our community and it's just a passion that I've always had for a long time to go and, and serve the community and it's just a way for me to be able to do that. And what age did you actually end up joining? I joined in 1996, I would have been uh, 22. Uh, and February 96 I started the Police Academy in Goulburn. Okay, what did that look like? It was a large brick building, uh, not much unlike all our high schools and things like that. So I basically went from one institution, being high schools, to uh, to the, the academy a few years later, obviously. But it was just a large building uh, down in Goulburn. It was really cold down there and hundreds of students down there wishing to start their policing journey. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. So it was fun as well. Like it was. Camaraderie. It was. There's all these people coming from all different backgrounds and walks of life, all there to, to do the one thing, to become a police officer and serve the community. And there was just a lot of wonderful people I met down there and the training was very interesting and it was all just steps towards achieving the goal of becoming a policeman. What sort of things did they train you to do? Uh, we did a lot of exercise. There's a lot of running down there. That was They were very focused back then on, on doing exercise, a lot of um, uh, gym work and, and running. Uh, there's a lot of instruction in terms of of uh, law and how to how to apply the law also um, weapons and how to restrain people for uh, physical combat things like that officers survival techniques and things uh, and there's lots of theory there as well in terms of law how to apply the law how to do certain things and they were also doing did scenarios too as to if something happened how would you react 
That's good. So you, a bit of role playing, a little bit of acting as well. It was. It, it was because none of us had actually had the experience of what life was like in the police. I don't think anyone could actually ever uh, understand what it's like to be in the police force unless you actually do it yourself. Because the things you see are just you just yeah. wouldn't believe. So for all of us, we had no idea, but it gave us the um, a, a good preparation in terms of uh, what to expect in terms of uh, the laws and how to react to certain scenarios. Um, they weren't real life scenarios so like in in everyday life when you're actually out in, in the police doing your duties you don't know what's going to happen so you need to be able to respond and react quickly uh, based on your skills and experience so um it what gave us an initial insight into what it was which was uh, a fairly good preparation for life on the streets now you didn't start um in sydney did you, you started outside sydney where did you start i my first posting was at gosford on the new south wales central coast okay. uh, where i spent my first six months there and um you describe it as being lower than a dog starting in general duties as a constable well now when it was when we um graduate as uh when we attest as professional constables um, from the academy we're, we're we're slightly higher than a student police officer but we're lower on a lower than a flea and a police dog in terms of rank and importance <laughs> and structure that's just that's just how they used to describe things back then but no but general duties was the um the driving force of the police force and they're a very important part of um policing yeah no, I mean, I just find it entertaining because every police officer who I've spoken to talks about, you know, when you first start, you're less important than the flea on a, on a police dog. It, it is, and uh, it certainly was. I'm not quite sure if it is that way anymore, but, I mean, you're just someone new coming out of the academy. You don't know, we don't know what experience you've got and, or whether you're going to back us up out in the streets and things. But, yes, you do have to earn your stripes in the police uh, to prove that you um, can do the job and that people can trust you and rely on you, and that's just part of the policing culture to, to describe you in that way just to make sure you understand where you are that yes. you may think you have all the answers but really until you've been in the job for a long for a long enough period of time you will learn from your experiences and you will learn that trust and it was the experiences that you really started to learn from so you did your first arrest up in um, Gosford and you had your first chase and yep. things like that I had lots of good experiences up there like I tried to apply all the woman woman fuzzy training we had at the academy up there my, my first arrest was um, I was standing with my buddy they assigned us a, um, a senior constable to someone who look after us during our initial training period so I'm there trying to impress my buddy uh, I went to a domestic violence incident and I'm standing there talking with the a naked offender standing in front of me and he's, he started spitting blood at me and started throwing punches at me I'm trying to restrain the best I can and so it was a good initiation in, into policing but lots of wonderful experiences I had a foot pursuit with an offender an escapee from the um, the juvenile detention centre up here uh, chased him through backyards over fences and um, across swimming pools and actually was able to arrest him by jumping onto a trampoline and grabbing him, grabbing him no as he was way. going over the um, the fence and my first car pursuit was uh, a pursuit that went where where shots were fired and as um, I went to make the arrest I was actually pulling him from the car he was reaching for the shotgun to shoot me and that was my first that was my first car pursuit and things like you just don't expect these sort of things to happen and it's just it's all become part of who I am and part of my experience as a policeman which led me down to take further actions and become a certain policeman further in my career yeah holy moly and I whenever I hear the stories that you all share with me I am there's part of me that's really ashamed of being part of a community that thinks it's okay to behave in the way that we need police officers and we put police officers in situations where they're at that much risk. 
and so I'm just going to apologize that that you know that you even have to go there because I think that's important you know thank you for doing that job for us and I'm, I'm really sorry that whatever's happened in these people's lives they feel that that's the only option that they have equally to behave in that way but you know thank you for uh, putting your life at risk to, to protect us and save us. It's, it's wonderful to get positive feedback from members of the public because the types of crime we deal with and the people we generally deal with don't aren't usually that uh, polite to us in terms of thanking us for helping them and uh, we it's easier to think that all people are like that they don't appreciate what you do we're just there as punching bags and mm. uh, but that's not who we are we're just we're just people too we're humans we just chose to make a commitment to serve our community and in, in, in doing in the police and the stigma around being a policeman is that you, know, you usually see policemen when you're in trouble or you've done you've broken the law or mm. you've got to give a death message but that's not the positive part of policing we're there to make a difference and, and be part of the community as well and make sure that you you can have us you are safe and that you have a, a good life yeah and and that's where i think pcycs do quite do a lot of good because they show the the community aspect of the police and actually that's that's really what we should have as police we shouldn't actually need the police to do anything other than the 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 more outrageous things it's just that we've kind of our norm in society's gone skewed to, that actually police are now having to deal with domestic violence on a scale that we've never seen before and gun-related crime and knife and drug and alcohol-related crime that is just is escalating absurdly. The um, number of jobs and different types of um, duties that police are supposed to attend to, like in terms of domestic violence, giving legal advice, uh, first aid, all these things that you know, they, they, that's that's expected of them but it's it's a lot of it takes a lot a lot of toll on on the serving police to do that and we're not just there to protect lives we're there to to be to give guidance and, and support as well and the, a lot of the community don't see that they don't they don't appreciate the job that the police do and i think it's important and not just police i mean all emergency services mm. uh, the, the type of work they do and the service they provide the community should they should be commended for what they do not just criticize uh and um uh, abused if if you're having a bad day or that you think it's a a, a fun thing to do in front of your mates absolutely well said all right so you're a young when you left when you left Gosford and were heading to Sydney how old were you then um, I would have just turned 23 I think all right a 23 year old coming down to Sydney you could have chosen city central like the the central hub which yep. i've been in i've been in the cells there only as an advocate i hasten to add as a young person's advocate yep. but um you know I've, I've seen i've seen a fair bit of what goes on in there and you didn't i didn't think that that was particularly easy but that was the easier life to choosing to go at that time to Redfern where it was just really the start of all the riots wasn't it? It was well I, I had the choice after we do our initial first six month posting we got a, a posting in the city I was supposed to go to city central but I was just loving what I was doing I was chasing armed defenders and the instance the instance I was involved with a guy with a gun and the foot pursuit across the fences and I, it, it just it, I wanted I wanted more action I wanted to get involved and I, you know, I just thought Redfern was a place to be that's where the riots were happening that's where the um, all the action was and that's where I knew I had to be for, for my policing career and for the passion that I had. So I organised a swap with a, 
uh, one of the um, guys from the academy I went to, with, and uh, yeah, he ended up going to City Central, and I ended up in Redfern, and yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> is he having a good time now? Is he all right now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I, I don't know whether he enjoyed City Central or not, but I had a great time in Redfern, despite yeah. everything that I was involved in. Uh, I enjoyed the experience, and I'm so grateful that I got a chance to go there because it's yeah. completely different now to what it was back then. Yes, so and that's I, what I've heard. You all made a difference to make it a different community down there and I and I think the community learns as much as the the law enforcement and the other services and the, the council and everyone learns how to support a community um, but sometimes you have to get to some really dark places to know that there's a better way to do something. you do it's, it's much easier once everyone gets involved and the police aren't just picking up the pieces where the police are now being more proactive in terms of the things they do as well as the community getting involved and the councils getting involved in order to to uh, prevent crime not just react to crime so they've done a wonderful job down there in Redfern. I haven't been down there since 2001, but uh, they've done a wonderful job in mm. terms of the, um, the the results that they're getting and, and uh, the way the community is down there now. Yeah, fantastic. Now, um, obviously, it wasn't too fantastic for you the entire time there, and um, I'll I'll post if that's okay with you a link to what we're going to talk about next on the website afterwards. But there was a, one particular incident where your um, penchant for climbing fences and jumping over fences and trampolining into all sorts of situations actually could have ended your life and it wasn't such a, a funny moment. Can you talk us through what possessed you to jump into the back of a stolen ute? There were there were actually a number of incidents that uh, throughout my career at Redfern that uh, really cost me my life being involved in riots. I was involved in the arrest of the black market murderers where seconds after they'd shot dead three members of the um, the banditos, we detected them, had a carpet shoot with them, we wrestled with them, we arrested them. That was like half an hour before we found out about the murders, uh, chasing arm robbers and drug dealers through the backs of um, houses and getting getting assaulted and uh, lots of serious things that I was involved in, having my gun stolen and wrestling with people with knives and Mm. um, carpet shoots and foot pursuits. I had a really wonderful time down there in terms of getting involved but um, that incident with the Ute in July 2001, it was just, I was just doing my job. I'd rec- identified that the fact that the Ute was stolen, I could have recovered it, but I was the sort of person I wanted to get a result. I wanted to catch someone with it. Um, and then we we're just patrolling around the, um, the block area and it drove up towards us. So we've boxed it in thinking it was going to be an easy arrest. I said, mate, stay where you are, you're under arrest. And next thing you know, I'm in the tray of the Ute as it's hurtling down the road. I'm looking at my brand new probationary constable looking at me going what's going on and I was lucky that I had my portable radio with me and then Mm. yeah from that it was just pretty much horror it was like 8 30 on a Monday morning peak hour traffic and it was just it's not something you expect to do but it's a situation I found myself in and I had to react to that um, with all my experience and just hope that it ended well because you were the more experienced you just said your probationary constable was looking at you going what are you you know like that's the the newbie going looking at the more experienced person and yet you had just put yourself into an extremely dangerous situation that thinking that actually this was going to get you the result you wanted, that, that would, would put the situation right, that the person who stole the car would be arrested. Well, I'd, I think his reaction was more the fact, like, what's going on, what are you doing? And I think yeah. mine was too. Like, I still yeah. have no idea how I got into the tray yes. of the ute. So it, it was must have been just an instinctive reaction yeah. for me to jump in the tray of the ute. It certainly wasn't something that I planned to do. No. It's just something that, that happened, and I had to respond to that being in the back of the ute. Yep. And so we have video footage of you being in the back of the ute and you're calling through asking for help and the support services are going, can I just clarify, you are actually in the ute. Now, it didn't, um, uh, the person in the car 
as you say, actually got out of the ute, didn't they? The, the passenger was even scared by the way the driver was driving. From when I jumped into the ute until, because it, it went through um, Chippendale, uh, up through Ultimo into the city, into the uh, park opposite Central Railway Station. So in that time, he's swerving over the road, he's rearing parked cars, he's looking directly at me in the um, revision mirror. I'm in the trailer, the, the, the Toyota Land Cruiser ute. Uh, they've got toolboxes each side and I'm getting thrown side to side. I've got my portable calling for assistance. And I noticed the length of rope wouldn't have been very long, like 15, 20 metres, uh, 20 centimetres long. I've wrapped my hand around it just so that I wouldn't get thrown out of the ute. So I'm getting thrown around the ute as he's intentionally ramming parked cars and he T-boned one big van in order to throw me out. So I had to get my gun out and threaten to shoot him. But but then you have the, the, the thoughts that go through your mind, like this guy's trying to kill me, I'm, I'm going to die, but at least he had control of the car. So if I shoot him, mm -hmm. then he's going to lose control of the car. He could kill an innocent member of the public. Like this was, so you're as I thinking said, about others the whole time you're trying to preserve your own life as well. Absolutely, because like, there's, there's people, like he's driving through Ultimo and uh, there's people walking to work. Yep, And there's like people walking across the pedestrian crossing and I'm just praying that no one gets hurt. And all of a sudden, the, uh, like as people are walking across the crossing, they part, the sea seems to part. And we managed to find a gap and walk through. But I'm thinking, if I shoot this guy, um, he's going to lose control of the car and he could kill someone innocent. So it's like, what do you do? I thought, I just have to hope that nothing happens that, and that I get out safe or that I, if I have to die because of that, then that's what I have to do. Um, but you just don't know how it's going to end. So um, it went round into the city, into the park, and then the, the vehicle started um, fishtailing around on the grass. So the, the, the passengers jumped out of the car, he was scared, he just disappeared. So I've smashed my hand and gun through the back window, held my gun against the driver's head and said, mate, you better stop or I'm gonna shoot you. Well, words to that effect off, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. I, there's a few obscenities there. Mm -hmm. And he's jumped out of the car while the car's still spinning around and I've jumped out and, and started chasing him and have a portable one hand, my gun in the other hand. And I was exhausted, I had injuries because I'd been thrown around the tray and I was just, I just wanted to, if you'd, I said to myself, if he'd just pulled over, I just would've walked away. I just want to go and yeah. see my kids. My, my youngest daughter was one, one month oh. old at the time and I just wanted to go home and see my family. Um, but he ran away, I chased him. Uh, luckily he ran into a building full of police, so bit of, bit of, car bit of karma caught up to him. Yes. So um, for me, I, it, that was, I mean, I know before then that I've been struggling with some things that I've been involved in beforehand, um, but for me that was the last day that I wanted to be a policeman, that I didn't want to be, didn't want to be at Redfern anymore. I love my job, but just to take those risks and to almost have it in that way that it almost did, that was just too much for me. I just wanted to go home to my girls. Yeah, and one of the <clears> toughest bits is, is saying, actually, I don't know how I got myself into that situation because it was instinct to do it, yep. which actually makes it more dangerous, doesn't it? Because if you can say, oh, no, I reasoned with myself and I knew where I was going, why I was doing what I was doing, you can go, then I can reason myself out of that decision next time. Yep. But when it becomes instinct to throw yourself into a situation yep. like that, and, and as you say, so five years in, that was the last day you wanted to be a police officer yeah. for that stage. It was, and it's different too, like in other situations where if you're involved in a foot pursuit or a car pursuit, you mm. can actually just stop mm. and terminate and walk away. I was stuck in the, this tray, this chute. Yeah. I had no control. He had complete control and he wanted to kill me because he wanted to avoid being arrested. Uh, and yeah, so that was actually less than five years in the job that I'd actually was involved in that and actually thought about seriously quitting. And what did your mm. wife say when she saw you? Uh, she actually, I'd actually, when I was taken to hospital for my injuries uh, and she actually rang 
my mobile phone, which I dropped in the tray of the ute, and one of the de- detectives answered because she rang to say our daughter was watching Ilmo and she was smiling, and oh. she found out that um, there from her that, um, that I was in hospital and what I did. So she came down to, to Sydney from the hosp- to, to get me from the hospital, and I was the best best feeling seeing yeah, her, and lovely. it was just like being home. So, uh, and then yeah, I just it was so good to see her. Yeah, and your boss. My boss was boss wasn't there, but when I got back, taken back to PlayStation, um, I was trying to type my statement up, and everyone's going, "Geez, you've been watching too many Lethal Weapon movies and things like that." And uh, I was just glad to be alive. I had injuries in my hands, so I'm trying to t- type my statement up. And my wife uh, turned up, and the uh, the crime manager at the time just said, "Didn't no, there's no offer of support? Are you okay? You know, job well done or, or whatever." It was just simply um, she said he said to her that no, when you're once you're finished with him, send him to me and give me a go. That was basically the debrief I got for that that action that I took. I mean, it may not have been the smartest thing to do, but it was instinct yeah. based on the situation and um, that was just the response I got and it certainly didn't make me want to hang around or be, be in the police anymore if that was the support I was going to get. Wow. Before the break, we were talking with Jeff Garland about um, the tr- uh, being a police officer, uh, some of the instinctive uh, episodes he had. It's a little bit difficult to call them anything other than that, but the the kind of um, bent towards adventure and um, danger, actually, I would say, that the, you were just, that the, you were immediately drawn to actually save others, but equally you were not aware of the danger that you were going to put yourself in in order to do that, up until an episode when he found himself in the back of a ute, of a stolen ute, and um, really being thrown around which is where your life flashed before you and you said you walked away five years um, you asked for help though Jeff didn't you there was something different in the way you didn't just walk away at that point you knew okay something you needed a little bit of support and unlike most we'll talk about that through this section you actually asked for some help what kind of help did you get for me, that episode was the final straw, pretty much, in terms of all the stuff I've been involved in. I knew I wasn't coping with things beforehand, but for me to go through that, I knew that I wasn't coping, and that's not how I wanted to live my life. So with the support of uh, my wife and family, I reached out, uh, saw my GP, and um, got referred to see a psychologist, and he then referred me on to see a psychiatrist, um, and I spent some time with them um, processing the stuff that I'd gone through, because it was important for me to accept that I wasn't coping and to, to do whatever I could in order to process those incidents that I've been involved in in order for me to gain some sort of control of my life and not let that that, um, condition um, control me. And do you find that when you asked for support it was there? I don't think that I've ever actually asked for support when I was in the police because it's not, uh, especially back then, certainly wasn't something that you did. When you're at the academy, you're taught to, you're taught to um, ignore your flight and your fright instincts and run towards danger and the culture says that you're not supposed to show that you're affected by what you what you see and what you do in your job um, and that if you do, you'll be, you'll be um, criticised, no one want to work with you, be able to look for promotion. It's seen as, um, as, as a sign of weakness for reaching out for help, even though you're just a human doing a job that has you know, faces... Um, uh, very confronting incidents. Uh, you're not supposed to show that you're affected by it. So uh, it, it it was never something that I did because um, it wasn't something that you're supposed to do. I know it's certain debriefs where you used to have where we get involved in something serious, then you know, those involved in it would actually be in the muster room and the supervisor or someone senior would go, okay, who wants to talk about how they're feeling or who's affected by what you're seeing? And no one would put their hand up because you don't want to 
admit to your mates that you're not coping. You don't want to admit that you're affected by what you see, even though at the end of the day you're human. So we'd all just no, we'll just ignore the fact, and then we'd all go out and have a debrief later at the pub, drinking beer and things like that. And that's how we do it. We just bottle it up and just uh, numb it by using alcohol to to cover the, what we're really feeling, which just certainly wasn't a, a positive thing to do. But no, not at all. Um, but you managed to. You managed to support yourself so much that you returned to work, which I can only tell you is really rare in the police, isn't it, with post-traumatic stress? That's one of the biggest things about post-traumatic stress. I mean, I did before I went off work I, I, and was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress, I didn't know what it was, and yet I, it, it's such a massive uh, concern in all emergency services. Um, so I didn't know what to do, so I just was very proactive in my own recovery. I made a number of decisions that meant that I wasn't going to let this condition control me. So I, I um, went and reached out and got help, which was the, one of the best things that I could have done, even though there was a lot of stigma even associated with reaching out for help. Um, but I, there's certain things I did in terms of uh, changing what those incidents meant to me. I wrote stuff down. I started writing my book, Split Second, about a month after I jumped in the ute. It wasn't meant to be a book, but for me it was just about writing down the stuff that I'd been involved in in that incident and throughout my career. And over the next 13 years, I continued to write that book uh, to, to explain all the stuff that I was involved in and, and being able to return to work. So it, it is rare because the stigma around post-traumatic stress says that no one, because no one knows what it is and you see people who get post-traumatic stress they don't come back to work they, they they end up losing their career they end up losing their relationship and some end up taking their lives um, and that stigma around um, that diagnosis meant that it's, it's unlikely for a lot of people who are diagnosed to go back because they don't know what it is there's not enough education and training about what it is and what are the signs and symptoms but for me it was a, it was, a make, it was about making a decision that to look after myself to process the things I've been involved in and and being able to go back to work I mean I was able to return to work for another 10 years before I was uh, ultimately discharged in 2011 and it was uh, it was it was hard but it was something that I was, I was passionate about and focused on doing and something I was able to do which is which is one of the things I want to do about post-traumatic stress is to prove to people that just because you get diagnosed with it doesn't mean it's the end of your career, your relationship or your life. You certainly can um, manage and recover from it. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly fully recovered from post-traumatic stress, no signs or symptoms. Uh, it's about making decisions and reaching out for help and having the, the education awareness about what it is and where you can reach out for help, what strategies to do, having the right treatment and having the right support around you. Uh, and it's, it's certainly that I want to change that stigma that, you know, that you, 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 it's, it's, there's a lot of hope and inspiration attached to it and that, that you're not stuck there for forever. It's something that you can certainly um, work through and, and, and get through. I asked a question a little while back about why you don't have current police officers coming to your talks um, or to talks like, like the one you gave this morning. Um, I'm not. I'm not presuming that you don't anywhere, but it's just clearly not. I would have thought the room would be packed. And what I felt, what I, I, I mean, that that is confusing to me because, as um, a youth worker, I have to do professional development. As a massage practitioner, I had to do professional development. As a, you know, in every area of my life, I need to constantly be updating my skills and make and my self care plan and all of those things. In the police force, I would have thought that this would be fundamental to your self-care plan, and yet actually, there's a feeling that that if if you talk about it, it's going to create a contagious situation. Can you elaborate on that a little bit or explain it? I know one of the biggest problems about um, emergency services and police in terms of post-traumatic stress is 
being identifying yourself with it. People are worried about the fact um, if they acknowledge the fact that they've got post-traumatic stress, then they'll be ostracised and they'll want to work with them. Um, and when you are diagnosed with post-traumatic stress, you don't hear from your mates at work. So, and a lot of that has to do with um, the officer maybe not if. If they accept the fact that their friend who they work with is not coping, they have to actually see in themselves the fact that they're not coping. Uh, and it's, their culture says that, that you're not supposed to react that way. So for a lot of people, it's about uh, trying to uh, ignore the signs and symptoms and, and, and just pretend that it's not happening. And to come to events like this, um, which would provide certain education awareness, and I've been advocating for, for years through the um, the organisations and through uh, all levels of government, uh, those in opposition and those in government, about better education and awareness uh, for, for police and emergency services and their families to give them um, the best preparation and support for their careers. Um, that hasn't transpired. Uh, and for them, th there is the, the feeling because no one knows about post-traumatic stress and what the signs and symptoms are, that the fact is that, that, that you too can actually get this just by being with somebody. So it's sort of like the conversation about suicide. You can't talk to people about suicide because of the fact that it may um, it may make the person do certain things. Or this same with post-traumatic stress. So you don't know how to react to someone with post-traumatic stress because it means you may have to identify with yourself that you're not coping and that, that you, you may be affected by it too because you see yourself in them because of the fact that they're affected by their job and therefore then you might be as well. So that, that stigma and that, that concern that, you know, that by reaching out and, and, and acknowledging uh, and and identifying that you, know, you may have concerns that, that you may be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress too and there's such a fear out there that uh, of getting diagnosed with post-traumatic stress and, and accepting that you're not coping um, that a lot of police and emergency services are seeking treatment in their own time because they're worried about the fact that they can't do it on their own time because of the, of the, the effect it's going to have on their careers and it shouldn't be that way they should be they should be taught about what they're going to experience in their careers going to affect them and then it's okay and it would be more of a concern if they weren't affected by what they saw absolutely and that there, that there are certain education uh, certain strategies and treatment that they can do that actually can help them they can get them back to work that doesn't mean they're going to end their career they can actually get back to work if they get treatment in the first 30 days they need to have that support the culture needs to support them and your mates need to be there for you too knowing that if you're not coping then you need that support to be there with them you haven't got to talk about how they're feeling just to, to be there with them and to to, to socialize with them and, and and be a support for them the thing is that if we make talking about feelings a bad thing all we're doing is burying what we're feeling and we're learning coping mechanisms and uh, one of the things you touched on in your talk was about using alcohol as a coping mechanism or, or, or your medication or just but they're coping mechanisms they don't actually solve the issue they don't give you an opportunity to talk about it and say you were afraid that you were going to die or you were afraid you were going to get hurt that that vulnerability if we deny that we have that it is, a, it is a recipe for disaster in the long run because that's who we are. So it's so interesting, isn't it, hearing that in such a male-dominated industry, there is very much a culture of not talking about it. That's, it's been around, like, post-traumatic stress has been around since before the Vietnam War and the culture's always been just to get on, get on, sorry, get over it and get on with it. Yeah. I mean, look at the, um, the statistics on suicide, yeah. the highest they've ever been um, because of the fact that you know, people feel like they can't talk about it. We're having, like, having enduring conversations about topics like suicide and post-traumatic stress and mental illness where people feel like that they can, they can reach out, that they know that they're not alone and that that's not something they've got to live with the rest of their life just by having a simple conversation and encouraging them to reach out for help can actually be a, 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 the, um, a big step forward in actually for them to recovering and actually getting the help that they need rather than being afraid of the consequences of actually doing the right thing and, and doing what's best for them and reaching out for help. 
it's more manly to say that you need help than not, right? It's certainly not a sign of weakness. Like it's, I, it's, it's the best decision of my life, and yeah. I think that. I mean, in, in, in the first step in any recovery is to actually accept you're not coping and, and do something that's in your best interest. Um, I've got Jeff Garland in the studio with me today. He has written a book called Split Second, Split Second uh, which I've got and is now on my list to read. Um, it's a, a fascinating tale of Jeff's experience of being a frontline worker, being in the police force, of finding himself in um, a couple of very precarious situations, leaving the police force, finding a way to um, put himself back together um, from post-traumatic stress going back to work until actually he found that maybe that wasn't the career for him anymore and now um, he has written a book and he is sharing with others and trying to raise awareness about the importance of talking about post-traumatic stress about educating police officers about what they are likely to go into and we could say you've obviously said this is about all frontline workers this isn't just specific to police officers no, it's certainly not just police there's fire ambulance there's vra ses rfs there's um, corrective services there's lifesavers there's yeah. doctors and nurses as well That's even right. even recently in the paper they were saying that even like judges and magistrates are being affected by post-traumatic stress yeah vicarious trauma i mean yes. you, when you hear a story enough times and have to go into that story and see the pictures and see the video then you have the decision about you know laying uh, guilt and making a charge i no i actually take my hat off again like there are some people who have to step up and do these jobs and i thank them for doing it because actually i don't think i could so we need to support people who do by giving them professional development where would the world be without and that's the, that's the biggest question to ask where they're right. the ones who run towards danger and, and and provide those services as a frontline organization or as first responders and it's important that we look after them when they need the help because they're always there for us when we do that's right with my public health hat on if we have rising um, issues of um, heart disease of diabetes of obesity of, of um, you know drug and alcohol issues I wonder if it's coping mechanisms. I wonder if all these ways that we're using to cope with what we're seeing and living and hearing and doing is actually part and parcel of the lifestyle illnesses we're seeing, you know, blowing out of control. Certainly a consequence of the things that we're involved in and not being able to have that proper support and knowing, not knowing what to do or who to, who to reach out to when things are tough, we tend to choose wrong options. Which is a perfect bridge, Jeff, into our 10 steps to recovery. What is first on the list? Okay, the first steps in the, the 10 steps recovery is awareness. So that for anyone going into the emergency services and their families, it's very important they have awareness about what, that, uh, about what uh, they're going to see in their career and, and what they're going to see is going to affect them. They need that awareness so that if they have, uh, are affected by what they see, then they know how to react and what to do. Yeah, a process. Yes. Just like we have a process for other things, but actually an honest process by people who have been there who've seen it who've done it and who aren't afraid to talk about it it's just about pre prepare, sorry, preparing them for actually a life on, on um, in the emergency services that that, that you, know, you, you are going to see things that you, no one else is ever going to see and you're going to see it on a regular basis yep. and have that awareness to if if you are affected by it to know what to do and what signs and symptoms to look out for we need to have a very solid sense of who we are yep. and a, a routine and a self-care routine and a, a, you know that element of nurturing ourselves to make sure we, we build a body that can withstand that and we have our processes, hey? That's exactly right. Okay, so that's probably going to come up later, but next. So the second uh, step to recovery is 
education. So once you've got the awareness that in your career you're going to see things that affect you, you need to know what to look out for. You need to know what is post-traumatic stress, what are the signs and symptoms, uh, what are the treatment options available, where can I reach support, what strategies are available for me to actually confront these incidents I've been involved in and, and where, can, where can I go and get help. Uh, it's, it's very important to, to have that because once... Uh, with, with that education then if you are affected by what you see then you know what to do you can respond rather than having to bottle it up and and, and just do the best by yourself because you don't know what it is because you, you can't fix something you don't know about yeah yeah good point number three uh the next one point three is um the culture so we need the appropriate culture in order to support the um those in the emergency services so that if they are affected by what they see then they're encouraged to reach out for help that it's not seen as a sign of weakness you're not going to be ostracized and commit career suicide by actually admitting that you're human and that you're affected by all the all the things that you see so it's important that we have a culture that supports um the officers and their families uh with what they're going through so that they know that if they are affected they can reach out for help and that there can be a positive outcome as opposed to being uh being used against them and and and, and ending their careers. And you said that this has been around since pre-Vietnam battle shock. So there has been no change. We, we have all been aware of it since then. And I, I include myself that, but I'm not in that position. I could have done something about it. But they should have done something by now. It's a lot of years since the Vietnam War. It is, yeah, since the, the um, 1969, the Vietnam War. So since, since before then, I mean, my father was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. I found out recently because of his involvement in the Vietnam War. Um, and it has been around for such a long time. Oh, First World War. I mean, they had it then, didn't they? Abs really? Absolutely. I mean, it, it's just the fact that the cultures, the, because they're all men doing things involving war, and it's always been you can't talk about how you feel. It's been around for a long time and, and, and nothing is changing. And you look at the suicide rate in the emergency service and in particular the military, they're affected by this sort of stuff too, oh, yes. majorly. And it all, all comes down to, it should come back down to about the person, about providing proper education and awareness to, to prepare them for a life on the front line uh, and then giving them the support services and having the culture around them to say, uh, that if you're not coping, we're here to look after you. You're important to us. You're not just a number. A lot mm -hmm. of us feel like numbers in the, in, the, yes. in the career because that's how we're treated. But by providing the proper culture for us to reach out for help and know that we're supported in that process, it's not going to be used against us. That's a massive step forward in actually um, reducing the amount of um, officers who are affected and extending careers because we're losing a lot of senior police uh, who have, with all that experience because of the stuff, the post to make stress, they're not getting that support and that culture says that they can't do it. As you say, losing real people, they're not numbers anymore, you know, they, they become, they are people right from the get-go. Yeah, they've always been people, it's just the fact that that's how they're treated. Yep. All right, number four. Number four is acceptance. So that's acceptance both on part of the officer uh, to accept that the fact that um, they're going to see things in their career that's going to affect them. And if they are affected, accept uh, that they're that uh, they're not coping and, and, and reach out for help. But it's also acceptance on behalf of the actual organisations in saying that post-traumatic stress is a major part of uh, the, working in the emergency services. Yes. It's important that um, we support those officers who are going through it and, and their families too, because the families, they're usually the last line of defence. They're usually the ones who notice when their partners are changing, but there's no, uh, not enough being done for them in terms of who, who they can reach out for. So they need that education and awareness as well and, and, and supporting them in supporting their, their partners as well. Lovely. Number five. So referrals are number five. So it, it's important that we actually, for those who are, who are struggling with post-traumatic stress or affected by their job, even if it's not to the point of being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress, that they actually refer to the appropriate agencies for, for proper support. Um, at this stage, there's a lot of um, inconsistency in terms of uh, where to go help. There's a lot of people out there who don't have the qualifications in terms of uh, treating people with post-traumatic stress. Uh, it, there is more of a conversation happening out there and that is ten it does uh, seem to be happening more but it's important that they get the, the appropriate referrals to the correct organisations early so that they get the, the, um, the, um, the support and treatment that they need uh, as early as they can. 
Number six. Number six is treatment. So uh, it's very important that the officers receive the appropriate treatment for them uh, in order for them to, to uh, process the emotions and recover from the condition they've got. Uh, the biggest thing in terms of the treatment is, is the fact that there's the lack of specialised uh, uh, mm. treatment in terms of those with post-traumatic stress. Uh, the current system, the way it works, is the there's the officers who are, who are already struggling with post-traumatic stress and not knowing what it is. Have, uh, they think they've lost their identity because they're no longer in the police and they're worrying about their future career, they're, they're even suicidal. Um, they don't they're actually put in treatment facilities with people who, who may actually be offenders who they can't relate uh, to and, no, no. and, and they who they don't trust. So yes. they're, not, they're not going to reach out to someone who they don't trust, which is uh, adverse to their recovery. So, And I've been advocating for years that we need an in independent treatment facility just for emergency service officers because of the fact that they understand what they go through. We all went through similar sort of things and we can relate Such to them and we can encourage them. And, and, and it's, it's a massive step forward, but we just need that, that to happen. So it's important that they get the appropriate treatment and that they're not just treating the symptoms, they're treating the condition. A lot, yes. lot of um, specialists uh, are uh, actually treating the actual symptoms in terms of trying to make them feel better in that moment yep. but it's important that they get the appropriate treatment to actually treat the condition yeah. the stigma is that once you get post-traumatic stress it's there for life that's not the case yeah. it's important that message gets out it's not yeah. the case you've just got to make certain decisions and reach out to people like me who've who've been through it before and who, who are willing and who, who has the experience and the qualifications to help as well so you can mentor through that process yeah well through through my experiences in, in what i've done through my book um, i'm now a fully qualified uh, master nlp coach hypnotherapist and timeline therapist too so i have the skills and Qualifications uh, to help people through that process and through coaching as well. So mm. I'm, I'm very passionate. It's my life purpose now. So I'm willing to do whatever it takes to help people who are going through it because they've they've made the sacrifice and there they are where they are because of their job and they shouldn't be left alone to fight to fight mm. alone. All right, now, um, then we went to number seven. Number seven. Number seven is the most important one, which is making a decision. If you want to recover from anything or achieve anything in life, you need to make a decision uh, that you're not going to be controlled by the be controlled by the condition or anything else in your life. So for me, the first step I did was make a decision. I just decided I'm not going to be uh, live my life like this anymore. I'm not going to let the condition control me. I'm not going to um, be a, a victim of my circumstances. I'm going, to, I'm going to be consciously in control of everything that's going on in my life. And by doing that, it, it allowed me control and allowed me to to do what I had to do in order to achieve the results that I want and to be able to fully recover from post-traumatic stress. So you need to decide that you're not you're not you post-traumatic stress is not a, a diag not a definition, it's not a disorder, it's a diagnosis. That's the most important thing. You can get through it. You just got to have, make that decision and, and have that support in, in order to do it. Yeah, you're walking, talking that, and it's everything that we say on this show. Don't be defined no. by what someone says to you. You know, you make the decision to make your life what it is. You're in control of how you think, feel, yeah. and behave. So it's entirely up to you. Uh, strategies. Strategies are number eight. Yes, so it's important that once you you get the you accept that you're not coping, that you get the proper referral and, and treatment, and you make the decision to take control of your life and not be, not to be a victim of the, the condition, is to have the appropriate strategies in order to, for you to process those uh, those uh, incidents that you've been involved in. And I use a number of strategies. For me, writing my stuff down helped clear the things out of my head. Uh, exercise was a major thing for me too because it allowed me to do something positive for my life. I wasn't locking myself away where I was ruminating about all my experiences. Uh, and and a lot of things I did was about changing the meaning of the events that I was involved in and changing the associations so interrupting my thought patterns about the incident I was involved in and, and uh, it, it worked wonderfully well just by using simple techniques like that so it's important that they have the appropriate strategies uh, for them to, to use uh, what may work best for me and may not necessarily work best for anybody else and vice versa it's a matter it's about choosing a number of strategies that you can do and view as a daily care package and get out there and actually start doing things and being proactive not locking yourself away and worrying about what you've lost and the fear of the future getting out there and actually doing stuff 
uh, and, and, and seeing if it works. If it doesn't work, then you try something else. Yeah. There's lots of things you can do. You don't have to sit back and let this condition control and, and ruin your life. Now, the reintegration, which is number nine, is an interesting one because obviously for some, it's not going to be a reintegration back into work. They may choose not to go back into that, but should you choose to go back into it, it's actually saying that um, you can go back, you can do that work, you can be on the front line. You just got to be really aware of what's triggering you yep. and be more aware of the signs and symptoms of post-traumatic stress than you were the first time around. Absolutely. Well, um, reintegration is a very important step. As you said, it's whether you get reintegrated back into the police like I did after 10 years. Uh, I didn't learn from my experiences. I went out there and was got, just got involved in the things I, I did before. So uh, I didn't learn from the experiences uh, but it's also being reintegrated into life if you decide, if you are medically discharged and you decide that you don't want to be in, in the emergency services anymore. So uh, it's important that the officers get that support. So after years of service that they actually have the opportunity to be reintegrated back into the emergency service uh, organisation, if that's what they choose to do, or into life uh, external to it, rather than saying, here's, here's a payout, here's some money, we'll support you financially for a certain period of time, we'll give you some medical treatment for a certain period of time. But after that, you, you're, you're on your own. That's not what they deserve. I mean, they deserve our utmost mm. uh, support and respect and deserve to be looked after post-life or, or coming back into the, the emergency services because and they, they've got the, the condition because of their service and they deserve yeah. that, that support and I mean they're people too I mean they don't deserve they shouldn't be served, made to serve 10-15 years yet thanks very much now you, you can just let, be left to pick up the pieces of your life by yourself what they need and deserve that support from us and, and to it's be It's full circle isn't it, it? Is. it's what we were saying right yeah. at the start they're human beings and they may choose actually that you know thank you for that support now actually I can go and I don't need your support anymore because I'm going to take a different role in life yep. I'm, but at least you've been there thanking them for the service that they've offered you and giving them the the, the opportunity like you can lead a horse to water you cannot make it drink if no. they don't want to that's at least give them the option at this stage there's just the nothing there's just yeah. basically you've been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress you've gone through discharge you've got to go through all the hurdles for the insurance companies and being forgotten by the police the emergency services family uh, and you're left on your own fighting for years for your entitlements and you're left to pick up your pieces and your family do too and it, and it creates problems and it ends relationships but it doesn't have to be that way but at least this way that there's that option if they want to do it they can choose what they want to do they have control over where that, how they want to live the rest of their life there you go listeners you have 10 strategies um, 10 steps oh purpose we've forgotten number 10 can't forget number 10 number go 10 number 10. 10 is very important so purpose is very important like those who join the emergency services do, do so because they have purpose they want yes. to make a difference in life and for me it was good versus evil it was about confronting crime head on and, and making a difference in the world and for those who are going through post-traumatic stress or who end up being discharged or whatever they they lack that purpose they lack yeah. that identity with uh, of, of who they were and, and everything they achieved throughout their career so it's important they have that sense of purpose uh, not just in purpose in terms of I'm going to go and cure cancer but purpose mm. in terms of stuff to look forward to during the day so in terms of catching up with friends or to go to a job or have certain uh, things that they look forward to, to get, that gets them out of their house and into bed and gives them um, passion for life again which is what they need so purpose is a very important way to end the, um, the 10 steps. I remember um, what you said in your talk which was really fascinating was that ability to start realising not to be defined by what you do but actually get a sense of who you are and what you bring to the world so it might be a playfulness it might be a dedication it might be a an absolute knowing that you know right from wrong 
and that's what you, that's what's really important to you. That's a gift to us, and so it can be implied in so many different areas, not just in the police force, not just in that one role. So that ability to see to to give your sense of purpose a greater what is your purpose as part of humanity, mm. as opposed to what is your purpose, you know, in the small, and you bring the micro what is my reason for getting out of bed yep. into actually what what does the world need from me it like just like what i've done with my experiences like i'm, I'm no one special i'm no different but I'm, I'm now able to go out and share my experiences with um those who are struggling in order to provide yeah. education to, to make a difference and save lives because that's that's my purpose in yes. life it's and a the, ripple effect isn't it you might have what were you saying one person might hear your story if, if one person hears my stories it makes a difference and that's one life i've saved and that's yes. that's that's an outstanding achievement for me because that's why i'm here it's why i'm doing what i'm doing i'm a strong believer that things happen in life for a reason and yeah. that I went through this and I, I was able to fully recover because it was my, my purpose to, to actually share my story to help others because it's such a major issue out there when it really doesn't have to be. No. I am talking to Jeff Garland, a, uh, an ex-police officer who, um, in fact, you know what, I'm going to change my introduction there. I am going to say you're listening to stay in the loop with Lucy and I'm talking to Jeff Garland a man who knows right from wrong whose sole purpose he felt from a young age in life was to go out there and actually bring that gift to the world to remind people that they are safe um, how else would you describe yourself Jeff? Well, someone who's not a, not afraid to do what needs to be done in order to get the results that that, that have to happen like the simple conversations through education and awareness is all of is how we can make a massive difference so I'm not afraid to have difficult conversations I'm not afraid to meet with people of influence to try and uh, advocate for the proper support and awareness uh, I'm it's just, it's just, it, that is my passion. So there you go. There's the introduction to Jeff. He's been my guest in the studio for the last um, hour, and we're coming towards the end. So we want to say, okay, what? How do we bring all of this together? Um, Jeff has has written a book, but he's also on a tour. So now, where is your tour going? How can we catch up with you? Yeah, so I'm currently probably halfway through my triple zero trauma. Uh, officer needs assistance tour so um, because of all the advocacy I've been doing in terms of trying to raise awareness and education about post-traumatic stress in the emergency services and prove to people that it can be prevented it can be managed and it can be recovered from I've actually decided to go on a tour around New South Wales where I'm touring around 19 different locations to to um, share my story and, and to inspire people and, and uh, get, encourage them to reach out for help and not to ever ever give up uh, so I've already done the, um, the, cent- the New South Wales Central Coast and Newcastle and the Sydney uh, today we did Hornsby and I've got uh, Coffs Harbour, uh, Wollongong, Port Macquarie uh, next week on Monday the the 6th of um, November. November, yep. Uh, I will be at Tweetheads PCYC. So, uh, Tuesday the 7th I'll be at Lismore PCYC. Uh, Wednesday the 8th I will be at uh, Teamworth PCYC. Uh, Thursday the 9th I will be at Dubbo PCYC. The Friday the 10th, I'll be at Bathurst PCYC going home for my daughter's 11th birthday. Can't miss that. No. And then um, going to Albury PCYC on Monday the 13th, uh, Wagga uh, PCYC on the Tuesday the 14th, and still trying to confirm Goldman, hoping to get somewhere Goldman PCYC on the 15th, and then I can have a few days off. So. Wow, what a tour. <laughs> yeah. And I, it, I, it is something I'm in, intending on taking nationally. I've had some requests to go speak nationally. Um, but Need just... some financial support for that, just in case oh, you've got anyone absolutely. out there like, I'm trying to pay to... for this myself I've launched a GoFundMe page uh, I'm very passionate about sharing my experiences and I know there's people out there who want to hear my story
story. So yeah. it's about being able to afford to do that and having the opportunity to do it. So it, it will happen. So good on you. All right, and also there's an expo going on. Uh, well, in fact, um, an expo happened on Thursday. Thursday. I think, yep. I think our listeners might just miss it. Yeah. What happened at that? That's the um, that's at Rose Hill Racecourse. So that's the backup for life expo. It's a um, it's run. Uh, it's not, program run through police legacy but it provides uh, support for and a mentoring program for for police who have been discharged with post-traumatic stress to reach out to be able to have the services available to reach out for help in terms of that uh, it's run by esther mckay lovely lovely lady i've known her for about 10 years she's written a couple of books uh, she runs a support group down in uh, campbelltown the police post-trauma support group uh, make, which makes a massive difference to people uh, and yeah, they run an expo uh, every year. This is the second one where uh, people could come and attend and learn more about um, the support services that are available. Uh, I'll be down there with, uh, I was down there uh, with uh, a stand as well. And, and it's just good to be able to, for a retired police to come and learn about the backup for life and what pro- what programs they, they run and, and, and the involvement that Police Legacy and, and Esther McKay and all their, their mentors have. Okay, so it would be good to have a link to that. I'll put that on the website as well. And so there are two organisations. You can either go and see Jeff live at one of his talks. You can um, get in contact with Backup for Life. And obviously we've got the other shows that that we've done on this as well. Now, I feel it's really important to just finish up the, the show by talking about uh, post-traumatic stress as not being a disorder but actually that it's a normal reaction to an abnormal situation can you because this is something that's that is part of your education isn't it I usually upset a few people when I actually flash up the side uh, the slide that says PTSD does not exist because it's not a it's not a definition it's not a disorder it's a diagnosis uh, and it's really important that people understand that it's, it's it's a normal reaction as you said to an abnormal event it affects uh, over 1 million Australians every year uh, 10% of Australia will be affected by post-traumatic stress in their lifetime and the statistics say about 20% of those in emergency services I'm sure it's much higher than that but by labeling it it is disorder it makes it a difficult job even more difficult when someone is diagnosed with a condition that they know nothing about that they see other people who when they're diagnosed they just disappear seem to disappear off the face of the earth that their careers end their marriages fall apart and some actually end up taking their own lives it it makes it and even their own association of that word disordered which basically means that it's permanent that it can't be resolved that it's something they're struggling with it basically means that they've condemn themselves to having this for the rest of their life which is not the case i mean it is a diagnosis it is a condition it is an injury it is something that you go through as a result of something adverse that you've seen and it's it's important that we stop labeling it as as a disorder we that we stop labeling it as ptsd that we have that we are uh, have post-traumatic stress it's just something that we're going through at the moment because that engenders uh, something more positive in terms of uh, their recovery and gives them hope to know that okay that it's not uh, something that I'm, I'm stuck with for the rest of my life. It's something that I can actually confront and and and, and overcome. I love. I have loved talking to you because I love the approach you've taken about you being the change you want to see in your life. That you don't. You have had experiences that I can't even comprehend. I can imagine them from what I've seen on television. But for you to have that in your body, yuck. And yet you have said, that's not going to be, that's not going to define my life. This is not the ending that I'm going to have as what, as me. 
Exactly right. It all starts with a decision. We have every second of every day of every every week, every year, we have a chance to make a decision that will change our life. And for me, it was making a decision to not let this condition control me. I mean, because of the the action that I've taken and the decisions I've made, I've been able to process everything from my past. So I have there's no emotion attached to the incidents I was involved in. They're, they're just simply experiences that I've gone through in my life, and I'm now able to speak to about them openly and honestly without no emotion or no like negative emotions. I get, I get excited about it because I'm, I'm very passionate about what I speak about but there's nothing that there that upsets me in terms of what I've gone through even though at those those times when I was going through them and just afterwards when I had post-traumatic stress I was I, I was I would cry uncontrollably I was suicidal because of those same experiences but now I can share them because I was, I was able to process them because I made a decision to take control of my life and we have that control we control how we think feel act and behave it's us if we take make the conscious decision we just when we're going through post-traumatic stress we're learning everything that we're involved in to control how we think and behave we're allowing, allowing we're living unconsciously we're living like we're, we're not actually living we're actually existing but when we make a decision to take control of our life we get back control so for me for a long time i blamed uh, the police for the fact that they didn't support me i blamed the insurance companies for how they treated me i blamed all the crooks for the stuff that they did to me but when i took responsibility for what i was involved in when I, mean, I was the one who decided to jump in the ute i was the one who decided to jump in the entrance channel to save the life i was the one who decided to wrestle with the guy on the cliff face i decided to i made those decisions in my career so I need to take responsibility. I am where I am today because of the things that I did and the decisions I did and didn't make. So it's important that we take that responsibility and take um, control because when you do that, you get control of your life. You actually get to control how you think, act and behave and actually can control where your future goes. Where if you keep blaming everybody else and you're, and you're a victim or, or you're, uh, the conditions controlling you, you have no control. So basically you're uh, letting everyone else control your life, how you think and how you behave and what happens in your life. And that's no way to live. You need to make that decision to take mm-hmm. control of your life. And it all starts with a decision and we have that power. Well, I hope that your story inspires many others to see how they can be that change. Um, Jeff, where can we get your book, Split Second, Real Life Experiences from Behind the Thin Blue Line? Okay, that can be ordered through my uh, website, so splitsecondstory.com, uh, and just order through that. And I've got a whole bunch that I'm taking on tour with me. Um, I'll send it out. I'll even sign it and put a nice little message in it for you too. Lovely. Thank you very much. Um, that brings us to the end of our show today. I, I thank you so much, Jeff for being my guest. No, I appreciate you having me here. If, if anyone wants to contact me or connect with me through Facebook, I've got a triple zero trauma uh, Facebook page or just look up Jeff Garland um, on Facebook. I'm, I'm very passionate about helping people and I know that I make I can make a difference through my experiences and through my qualifications. Um, just remember that you're not alone. There's a lot of people out there who understand what you're going through, who want to help, who are going through similar sort of things. That's why I run a support group on the Central Coast and why we're setting one up in Newcastle and why Esther's running one in Campbelltown because it helps you realise the fact that you're not alone that people do understand that people do care and that they do want to help and no matter how dark your days get or how hard things never ever give up just reach out for people and keep believing in uh, that things in life happen for a reason and that you can get through this and you can use this to inspire other people you can be the difference in other people's lives well we will um, put lots of links I'll tag you in the Facebook post where I put this up as well so all anyone who wants to to get in touch can do so through that wonderful thank you very much thank you Remember, regardless of what has or is happening to you in your life, you are and always will be you, and you are amazing. The key is to reconnect to that space and learn to build a relationship with your body so that you can recognize when your body's trying to tell you something's not quite right, and then seek support with the appropriate support service, be that mental or physical health. Look for support in the community because it is there. 
The podcast for today's show will be available through the Stay in the Loop with Lucy website and on SoundCloud. And if you want to get updates, then please like the at Stay in the Loop with Lucy Facebook page. And links to all of those spaces are available on the Triple H program page, just in case there are just too many things to think about there. Till next week's show, remember to take a moment to look after you, to connect with the amazing people in our community. Be kind, be caring, be love, be all of you. You've been listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy on Triple H 100.1 FM.